Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm your host, Daniel Shea, and today I'll be talking to William Tierney about his book, Get Real, 49 Challenges Confronting Higher Education, published by SUNY Press in 2020. Think about it. About what? About anything at all in higher education that needs thinking about. William Tierney has found in his book, Get Real, 49 things that need thinking about, though truth be told, William Tierney's 49 things have many, many parts. Free speech, for example, relates to the beginnings of the research university in Germany, relates to academic freedom and the founding of the American Association of University Professors in 1915, relates to the mounting number of cases where microaggressions and First Amendment rights have rubbed enough to start fires, relates to fake news, relates to speech codes, relates to public censorship and self-censorship, and I'm just going to stop there. I think that if you multiply William Tierney's 49 by a factor of five, you'll get a conservative estimate of all the issues he's covered in his book, Get Real, 49 Challenges Confronting Higher Education. There are a multiplicity of issues, And of course, there are everywhere in our lives and especially today. But just think about it. How important is higher education and research and the workforce of the 21st century? These are issues we've really got to think about. Get Real is an invitation to do just that, to think. In his preface, William Tierney tells of his classes at the University of Southern California and how his teaching method is to help students ground their understanding of issues and also to provide students with opportunities to construct their own arguments for or against what they understand, for or against what others understand. One aim is to get students thinking about divergent ways of understanding and about the connections that's possible between these. William's patent question as professor is, what do you think? And it's the question that you hear throughout the book, not in those words exactly, but in the words that William Tierney chooses to analyze the problems in higher education, and also in the words he chooses to address those same problems. For example, class attendance. William makes his own position clear. Students should attend class. However, that's not only what he thinks. He speaks with students. He attends the 300-seat lecture halls where just 70 students follow a lecture. And he runs a compare and contrast between how things were a generation ago and how things are today. His conclusion? More teaching can be done online, but not all teaching can be done online. More faculty and more administration need to be considering these sinking attendance levels. The majority of students don't skip because they're slacking, but some do, and so on. Get Real has its multiplicity of issues. William Tierney offers a multiplicity of views. That's because, again, the point is to start a conversation. Nothing better for higher education could happen than for the people involved, to start talking about the issues involved. If we can discuss and come to an agreement as to what we believe, William writes, then we can come together about how to put those beliefs into concrete actions and policies. No way to know what we believe if we don't first think. 
Get Real is thinking practice in book form. William Tierney is a great thinking coach. William Tierney is university professor and Wilbur Kiefer professor of higher education and founding director of the Puglius Center for Higher Education at the University of Southern California. He's past president of the Association for the Study of Higher Education and the American Educational Research Association. His recent books include Rethinking Education and Poverty, Trust and the Public Good, Examining the Cultural Conditions of Academic Work, and New Players, Different Game, Understanding the Rise of For-Profit Colleges and Universities. So let's begin today's episode, William Tierney and Get Real. Bill, welcome to the Scholarly Communication. Thank you very much. Um, this is a book that holds together very well with its uh, interest in what's going on in uh, higher education, what we need to think about and where we might go, where we can go. Um, It's also, though, very, very many views broken down into essay form. I I wonder if you could tell us a bit of the germination process of the book. Thanks a lot. I think uh, there are two, two parts that we need to uh, put on the table. One is the the genesis of the book is that I have read a previous book by, that is entirely not related to uh, higher education. P- Peter Singer, a, a philosopher, where he presented ideas um, like I do, uh, and really was trying to f- encourage the reader, force the reader to think through what do they think. And and I thought it was a great format, and I think that. The other issue and why this book makes made sense to me is that dealing with topics in isolation, um, certainly there's a, you know, a need and a, and a purpose for that. But really, when you're at a university, all of these issues um, come together and you can avoid, you know, talking about academic freedom and only focus on teaching excellence, for example. But at the end of the day, those two topics are related, and we need to think of the, the wealth of, of topics that confront us, all of us, in higher education and how we want to deal with them to move forward um, aggressively in the 21st century. Uh, you know, during the pandemic, um, in with all social organizations, people have said, well, once, you know, once we are all vaccinated and, and life returns to normal, does not mean that we're returning to pre-pandemic times. And I think that's true, but it also doesn't mean that we're going to start with a clean slate, that we're starting, you know, we're, we're erasing everything that we've been doing and moving forward. So that's, that's what came up when I, when I started writing the book and it only accelerated because of the pandemic and then um, the racial activities, George Floyd being murdered in Minnesota this past year. And then what you're saying is that uh, the pandemic is showing up uh, things that are already there and the after pandemic time, if we, uh, God help us, reach that time, will have to necessarily include the past, but needs to be forward-looking. I'm thinking in particular of the first section where you you put uh, quite pro- provocatively the you know the the scenario in question. You know, make believe that we don't have a higher education system, and let's think how would we build it. Um, what might you say on on, on that point? 
You know, there are two interesting immediate lessons from the pandemic, um, at least in the United States. And the first one is that um, for a century, we have all said, oh boy, the, the problem with change in higher education is the faculty. The faculty are, you know, just are unwilling to change. And lo and behold, when when COVID arose, um, you know, and I'm on a variety of different faculty blogs, and literally a week before every the world closed down, I there were faculty saying, uh, you know, I can't imagine teaching without teaching uh, in person. You know, all this stuff online would just be a disaster. And one week later, all of the faculty changed on a dime. I mean, uh, just uh, immediately. And I found that remarkable that faculty uh, who are looked on as as curmudgeons who you know will only look to tomorrow to decide what we're going to do tomorrow tomorrow, in effect said, "Well, there's no choice. We have to do this immediately." So that's one point. A second point, and I think this is most interesting, is that um, for those who say, well, we want to move online, you know, it's just, that's the way to go. Lo and behold, one thing that we discovered is that students actually like classes. They like being on a campus. Um, over the course of the year, there were times when I wrote op-eds in, in different uh, formats. And, uh, you know, when this, in March or April of last year, uh, I wrote an op-ed and I said um, that the you know we were at that time. It's this seems like ancient history, but at that time we were all debating. Well, will classes resume in September? And I wrote an op-ed and I said, "Look, we we need to realize the the severity of this pandemic, and we should decide now because then we will have be, be able to plan. We should decide now as a system." that um, we cannot have classes in person in the fall. And I was inundated with emails from high school students who were heading off to the university as well as university students who said, I understand what you're saying, but please don't say that. I, know, I want to get out of my parents' house. I want to go to the university. I do not want to spend you know, my, a year online the way I'm doing now. And, and I think, again, that, you know, that's important. I think that when we look at the pandemic, there are certain issues that I think actually we learned and they're better. Um, at least in a city like Los Angeles, where traffic is horrible, people, uh, you know, resorted to using online telemedicine when you had a doctor's appointment. I think that is a great improvement. And again, in Los Angeles, rather than have to fight traffic for an hour and a half, sit in the doctor's waiting room for a half an hour and then, you know, see the guy and then repeat it versus just turning on your, your laptop and seeing the guy on your laptop is terrific. But it's also true that, that um, people, you know, I think the restaurant industry will come back in a vibrant manner because people want to socialize and get out. The same, I think, is true in higher education. I think that, um, yes, we can make significant improvements with regard to uh, 
online learning, but people, uh, students like a campus where they can be together and uh, sit in classes with faculty. I should also say the, another interesting point that, you know, that I think before the pandemic, people would not have said is that before the pandemic, you know, one line that we often hear is, oh, faculty just want to do research and stay in their offices. They don't care about students. Well, and, you know, one of the most recent surveys I, I saw is that over 50% of the faculty in the United States um, said that they had spent a considerable amount of time counseling students online because of, you know, how hard it was this past year. So rather than an uncaring multitude of faculty just wanting to do their own work, we saw the opposite. And I think that's important because especially traditionally aged students, they do need to be able to, to converse with adults about the, you know, the myriad issues that confront their lives when they're 18, 19, 20 years old. I can also, with uh, further anecdotes, uh, support the um, what you're saying there about the counseling that uh, faculty have uh, given to students and being there for them and, and seeing them as people and understanding their role as educators beyond merely just the subject content uh, yeah. entirely. I would uh, like to follow that up, though, on this students wanting to be on campus, wanting to be there. A lot in the book uh, addresses the activities that are outside of class, the extracurriculars. Yeah. And it becomes then quite clear that uh, so much that is formative occurs there as well. I wonder if you could uh, fill us in a bit in that direction. Sure. Um, you know, the way a lot of us think about um, teaching and learning is, uh, you know, the, the clinical terms are cognitive variables and non-cognitive variables. The cognitive variables are, are pretty well understood, reading, writing, arithmetic. And, you know, are, are students reading at grade level? Are they, and this is throughout all of education, you know, are students performing um, up to their particular grade in, in mathematics? Because the assumption is that, that it's a building block and to move to B, you have to master A first. Um, and that's generally what's happening in the classroom and certainly true. But non-cognitive variables are um, a little more difficult to, to get your hands on. And, and, you know, in this day and age, I think that we need to come to grips with how do people work in teams? How do people communicate across differences, not simply in class, but also outside of class? You know, several years ago, and I think I have this in the book, I, um, there had been a very unfortunate incident at a university in the United States regarding race. Um, and they brought me out there and they wanted me to do an assessment of what was the racial climate like um, at the university. And I remember sitting in a room with, with a bunch of, of um, black students and white students. There, there were no Latinos or Asian Americans. And, you know, it was a really sad conversation because um, there had been a major disruption um, on the campus prior to my arrival. And, and it was over the summer. And the, the black, one of the black students said to me that he was home uh, when this happened. And he said his parents, especially his mom, were terrified of sending him back to a location that they thought was unsafe. And you know, I think any parent can resonate with that. You know, th that's an issue that goes, that is centered in race, but goes beyond race. That 
what parent would want to send their their child to a, an environment that's not safe? And we need to take that into account. But at the same time, I uh, there was a young woman, a white woman, who was from a rural area in the state. And, you know, as only a 19-year-old can say, she said, you know, I have a lot of uh, questions about what it's like to be black. She said, but I'm afraid to ask because I don't want to, I don't want to ask a cheesy question and get embarrassed. And again, I thought, you know, isn't, can't we all identify with that, that there's things that you just don't understand. But now we're in an environment that Rather than asking a question in in a in as honest a way as possible, you're afraid to ask, so you stifle the question. That's not a good environment for learning at a university in general. But I think that a university should be the fountainhead for this. That we need to figure out ways to to provoke a positive environment where we can ask difficult questions um, and and help students as well as one another think through these these often very tough topics right now and i think it's obvious that your experience there at that school needed to be in a seminar like context i mean you needed yeah. to be with these people together um you make the very good points in the book of seeing much vocational training or knowledge-based uh, learning possible to be put online but when you're dealing with critical thinking or emotions then the seminar becomes the basis of what it is that you're doing and yeah. i think that you're okay well maybe please yeah no you know daniel i i again the pandemic is a good learning experience for us and i think that when we talk about going in person versus online learning it it almost seems like we're we're creating a dichotomy that it's either or, you know, that either we're going to do this or we're going to do that. And I don't think that's correct anymore. And, you know, just from my own personal experience, I, um, you know, you're, we've been locked in our houses all year. So there are a couple different things that I have done. One is that I am um, rereading James Joyce's Ulysses, and I'm doing it with uh, a group of friends internationally, actually, there's seven of us. And we meet once a week, uh, visibly over Zoom, to discuss the topic. And there's also a podcast that I listen to every day about one of the confusing pages. Every page is confusing in choice. A second um, topic is that I'm about, uh, I'm, I'm in Santa Fe, New Mexico right now, which is a beautiful city in in uh, the United States and there's a liberal arts college here St. John's College and I'm reading uh, rereading the Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky and in about a month um, I'm going to have an in-person seminar an intensive seminar for a week for two hours a day for five days to discuss Dostoevsky with other people interested in the topic And then the third thing is I, I had a lapse of 40 years, um, but I picked up where I left off and, and started learning to play chess again. <clears throat> and 40 years ago, when I learned to play chess, I bought the requisite books and, you know, did paper and pencil and figured out how to play. Um, now, everything is online, and it is remarkable that they can 
you know, the, the ability to be able to create a challenger for me who knows my weaknesses so that when I play and I lose, I've learned why I lose and then overcome that and then something else. And I think those are three useful examples for thinking about higher education going forward, that clearly there are needed times when we need to have classes in person where people can talk about topics, but sometimes they can be speeded up. You know, the the format in the United States is an agrarian format that, you know, I teach my class for three hours. It's a graduate seminar, three hours a week, one day uh, in the morning, and then it goes for 15 weeks. Um, And there are some examples like chess that why can't we have experiences for students that speeds up learning, that if they go away for the summer, that there is some real, viable, good um, online learning experience that, that we can craft for a student that enables the individual to, to learn, but also doesn't take you know four years plus to graduate from college. Um, and, and I think I, my hope is that those are the sorts of issues that we think about rather than, uh, well, let's go back and do it exactly the way we were doing it a year ago. And again, you know, by no means am I saying that the bulk of activities should be that we bring students to campus, they're in their, their dorm room and all of their activities are online. But I think the opposite is false too, because we know that, you know, right now the internet is ubiquitous. You use it for everything. So, we can craft those in useful ways that are co-curricular as well as standalones, but the, but the centerpiece is students and faculty working with one another. I, I agree that there clearly has to be an intelligent mix. Um, if I think of my own teaching practice here at Heidelberg University, I uh, run the writing program primarily for uh, the biosciences. And I would say about 60, 70% of uh, the writers that I help are reaching me directly from the lab. Yeah. And they're so thankful for that opportunity because, right. you know, they turned me off and they're back at the experiment. Right. And you, But, you know, that's I had forgotten that, that you're in the writing program. I think that's another good example that, you know, I, I teach mainly graduate students and over my career, I have had, uh, you know, just a, a wide gamut of students in terms of race, gender, and, and economic class. Um, and writing is crucial to me. It's, you know, I, and, and um, maybe if I hadn't been a, a literature major in college and I'd been a math major, then I would say math, but that's not the case. Literature and writing has always been central to, to my life. And there's a lot of things that we can do online. And I am a very severe uh, critic of students' writing. So, you know, if you send me a paper, you will get lots of comments on it. But I can't tell you the number of times that students have said to me that the import of talking with me one-on-one in my office with the door closed. And, and you know, if I were to boil it down to, to one comment, it's that me saying to them, you can do it that I know you can do it. I will never embarrass you publicly. I will never embarrass you in class, but we've got to work harder on this rather than just 
let it slide. And, and you know, the, the encouraging thing for me is that students will always rise, ha- at least for me, have always risen to the, the challenges, and challenges and goals that I've set for them. What they don't resonate to is being ignored or being talked down to. And, and that's, you know, that's the key. And again, part of it is, is essential that you've, you've got to be there with the student and helping them work through the, you know, these truly horrible comments I've, I've made about all, you know, all the errors they've had in their writing. I think that some of that, and again, this gets back to this question of mix. I, I think that some of that uh, reaching out and honestly seeing the writer as a person, right? The writer yeah. has created a product, but the writer right. is also, you know, moving ideas and, and trying to reach purposes. So there's a person behind this, which is, which is, you know, let's say a more abstract way of looking at what you've just said. And I think that you can achieve some of that virtually in a face-to-face Zoom type uh, meeting. And I think there's also times uh, very much, just as you said, in the office with the door closed. Um, w- would, you, would you agree there? Do you think that there are possibilities on both ends? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, you know, I I have gone on sabbatical at times as well. And I've, I've, you know, so I don't know, three or four years ago, I I spent a year in in India, you know, and life doesn't stop for my graduate students. So I would zoom with them every week. At that time, it was uh, my Skype with them every week. Um, And, uh, you know, it takes getting used to, but uh, I was able to do that. But uh, you can give students exercises, but you, you know, writing, I mean, I don't need to tell you this, but I mean, writing is a dialogue. And um, I think the larger issue, the larger worry that I have right now is that um, rather than have the potential of creating conflict, you know, of having a student um be angered or insulted or hurt by your comments. Um, And then you getting in trouble, you, the faculty member getting in trouble too often right now, what I'm seeing is, is faculty avoiding the issue altogether, you know, and, and I'll read a paper and you give me a paper and I'll read it and I'll say, boy, this student really has a lot of writing problems. You know, what did you tell the individual? And you said, well, I said it was pretty fine because I know that the student talks with other students and I could get a bad reputation. and I could get in trouble. And that's a problem. And that's, that's a problem of faculty not knowing how to navigate a critical space for learning. And, and it's a missed opportunity, but simply going entirely online is not going to solve that problem. And again, in this day and age, if you're not dealing with technology the way students are dealing with it, we've got an issue as well. I mean, here, here's a, a funny anecdote from a million years ago. If, if, uh, if you, you can remember this, I don't know. Um, you know, so there were times, my handwriting is horrible. So even before the internet, I would type out my responses and I would, um, students would hand in a paper and then I would put a paper clip and they'd have my comments. And one of my grad students said to me, um, you need to, uh, I need to help you figure out how to embed comments online. And I said, oh, I, I don't do that. You know, I, that, I like it this way. 
typical faculty response. And the fellow said to me, you don't want to be looked on as someone who's out of it. Let me walk you through this. And I thought, what a, you know, what a great response, because you, you don't want, you need to be there with students in terms of, you know, uh, helping them deal with the, the world that they live in today rather than the world that you grew up in. That, that sounds like where the title came from. Get real. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'd, I'd like to come back to this idea of uh, dialogue that you were talking about in writing, because you actually draw that out to the teaching context in, in very interesting ways. Um, I'll just pick up from the diversity section, the example of, of microaggressions. And, and you talk yeah. about the teacher actually being able to not even avoid, but um, let's say, create an environment where a microaggression won't happen because of the dialogic, dialogical relationship that, that, uh, that comes about when the teacher doesn't see him or herself anymore as authority, but as a, a guide adapting, yeah. I think you say, even at some point to the class. Yeah. So the teacher not, let's say, being translators in chief is, is certainly one of the phrases yeah. I think you use there, but the teacher rather, you know, approaching the class in a manner that accepts you know, we are all learners and we all require respect and understanding. That put me in mind, for instance, of the uh, the 19-year-old uh, woman who, you know, from, from a rural area said, I actually want to talk about things and can't. Right. Because if you think about it, like a micro microaggressions, which are, you know, systemic discrimination, which is terrible, but being just a human can in very many ways just be systematically terrible. And I think yeah. there there is that obvious way of sharing. Right. I, you know, um, and I, early on in that book, I give um, an example from my own life that I think is instructive. So, you know, I'm, I'm gay and I'm, I'm happily married now and all that. But when I was in graduate school at Stanford, I was in a seminar, graduate seminar, a small seminar of about a dozen folks. And it was a great seminar and it was a great uh, group of students. Um, and at that time, I was closeted and not out. Yeah, so I was entirely, uh, you know, in, and um, the class had was not flam, you know, inflammatory at all. It was, I think it was about methodology and in interviews and observations. How do you do these things? And there was another student in the class who was um, a friend of mine, and she was interviewing um, women, uh, poor women. And she was white. And she said um, at one point, um, I don't, you know, I don't know how to cross these barriers. These are good people. I mean, they're not like criminals, prostitutes, or homosexuals. And everybody, including me, knew exactly what she meant. And it was a well-intentioned comment. And the professor in the seminar table, you know, nodded his head and and we talked about that. But what I raise in the book is that stopped learning for me that day. I mean, I, you know, lowered my head. I didn't want anybody to go, well, boy, you know, look at him. He's blushing or something like that. Um, and that today is what we would call a microaggression. Um, and today, because students are less willing to sit still, somebody would probably call the individual on that. But, you know, that 
friend of mine who asked that question is not unlike the young woman who said, I'm afraid to ask cheesy questions. And that's the dynamic of the classroom. And again, what, you know, what you see with, with administrators is really what they want is they don't want to have to deal with these issues. You know, it's like, oh boy, we're going to have protests either from you know, the students or the right wing or whatever. So let's avoid this topic. And, you know, at one point we would have called that a teachable moment. The faculty member could have said, wait a second, let's think about this for a minute. Um, But the teacher didn't blink because again, we all knew the understanding of the question. But I think that is something that today um, faculty have to confront. And You know, years and years ago, before I was at the University of Southern California, I was at Pennsylvania State University in the East, a large public university. Um, And uh, this is, geez, this is in the late 1980s, early 1990s. um, And there was some uh, protest that happened about learning in the classroom. And it was largely from students of color and African-American or African-American students and gays and lesbian and women. It was a big protest. And I remember a friend of mine who's in the math department, and again, a well-meaning guy. And he said, boy, I don't envy you. I really, you know, I'm so glad that I teach math where I don't have to deal with these issues. (laughs) And I thought, well, there you go, you know, because are you teaching a subject or are you teaching students? And um, clearly you're teaching a subject, but you're not teaching a subject to avoid. And, you know, when we make offhanded comments, when we say to a student of color in a difficult math class, you know, to be honest, when the class started, I never would have thought you, you know, would have performed as, as well as you do. The instructor is thinking that that he or she is giving a compliment to the student when actually you're, <laughs> you know, that's a real slap in the face. It for is, someone definitely. like you, yeah. you know, for someone like you, you're great. Um, and we have to think about those things and think about how do we create an environment where we enable constructive conversation occur uh, and not stifle it, but deal with the issues. Yeah, and uh, you you uh, make uh, ver- very clear in the book that uh, diversity is is such a broad issue. It's not merely a, a question of interpersonal relationships between you know professor and student, or between student and students, or what happens on campus. Although it is all that as well, but it goes so deep as to affect how it is that we learn what it is that we perhaps decide to learn and how those fields themselves advance. The, uh, the Nature podcast uh, working scientist has made a great study of the natural sciences and how diversity in every field from chemistry into physics and all the way through and all the way between advance their knowledge better when they have diverse teams of scientists. I, I quote from, from what you say in your book, let's jump forward a decade. If there are not significantly more tenured faculty, faculty of color and women in the sciences than there are today, the academy will, will be weaker. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I also think that people tend to, you know, they come from a situation, they come to a problem or an issue or an individual from, from their standpoint, from who they are. I, I remember a long time ago, I, uh, I read some research about um, couples. Uh, and this were heterosexual couples, husband and wife. And 
it made me laugh because one of the issues that came up was that when there was a problem, you know, if, if a husband came home and the wife were to say, this happened, that especially white men are problem solvers. Well, okay, this is what we need to do, you know, and you create a plan and you, you figure out how to get, how to solve the problem. And oftentimes what women were saying was, I don't need that. I need somebody to listen to me. You know, it's like, this is a conversation. And that was a real learning example for me is that, um, you know, when I work with students, sometimes students don't need me to give the answer, the problem for them. They need to know that I'm there with them. Um, You know, that when a student passes a qualifying exam and, uh, that, you know, there are issues for in the qualifying exam for the dissertation. Um, sometimes immediately after the meeting, the faculty member will go back in the office and say, okay, Daniel, here are the three issues that we need to do. You know, we need to rewrite this and rewrite that and then read more in this area. And actually what the student, the student is not listening to that in the least. They're thinking, phew, I passed. And that's where you need to meet the student rather than being the, the answer man. And, and I think that's the issue. And different people bring different skills um, to the table. And that's why we need to be a more diverse uh, group of individuals uh, in the academy. <laughs> and I could very much... Uh associate with this idea of sometimes a question is really not asking for an answer. It's asking for a personal response in a way. Um, You say white men, and I entirely agree this, this certainly fits the stereotype. I happen to be a white man married to a Greek woman, and I have to say some Greek women are also (laughs) problem solvers (laughs) and misunderstand entirely what it is that I'm after. Uh, Right. but but to make this less less personal and a little bit more applied to wider uh, higher education situation in in the area of writing when i think of my writing consultations that i um run i mean you'll know writing is a tricky thing to teach and it's very personal and what i often find in the consultations is precisely what you're talking about i will leave a consultation thinking along the lines that well i didn't really get the chance to you know dig into the sentences or talk about yeah. structure or whatever, but I'll get an email and it will be, thanks so much. I really see now what's going on. And I'll be like, what did I do? Yeah. <laughs> I must've been listening, I guess. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's sort of the, the you know, the, the teachable moment is that, you know, it, it's, it's an interesting environment right now. Um, you know, in my office, um, because I, I was director of the center and where I am, I'm, I'm a busy guy. And um, they also teach you that, you know, you want to make sure that there's no feigned intimacy or real intimacy. So I would often leave my door open and the student would come in and sit down. And invariably over time, what I saw was that the student would close the door. And the student, and I finally figured out the student closed the door for two reasons. One is that if the door is open and, the, and somebody passing by sees me, they could stop in. And as you know, with faculty, just for a minute, you know, to ask the question that they want to ask. And the student was telling me, this is my time. 
you know? And the other thing is, especially graduate students, the student may end up in tears because they're trying so hard and they want me to say, this is absolutely the greatest thing that's ever been written. And I'm not going to say that, but they also want it to be a safe space. And um, that, you know, the classroom needs to be a safe space. And it's hard for us to concoct that, especially now when the internet is so strong that, you know, we all have examples of colleagues who have said and made an errant comment. Sometimes they're boneheaded, stupid comments, but they didn't, they didn't mean anything bad by it. And then all of a sudden a student walks out, gets on Twitter, says, this is what, you know, Professor Shea said. And all of a sudden, you know, you go to wait a lunch and come back and you're bombarded with 500 tweets on what a terrible human being you are and you don't know how to deal with it. So, you know, the lesson you get from that is, well, I'm not going to say, I'm going to watch my words. I'm not going to say anything errant in, in the conversation. And again, that's the wrong lesson to learn. And it's certainly the lesson that your book uh, preaches not to go down that road because um, this whole call to let's talk, let's think, um, yeah. which comes out so clearly uh, in the yeah. book is, is exactly what, uh, what we need. Uh, you, you started off um, in our interview here talking about you know, the reputation or the stereotypes surrounding faculty who were being resistant to change and, and giving a brilliant example of you know, how, how that doesn't quite seem to be the case. And that makes me think that I wonder what is resisting change. And, and, and throughout the book, you get a very clear picture of how the university has been developing, at least say, let's, you know, approximately from mid-century to 1950s, right. 1960s. And what comes out as a clear picture, and anyone who's in higher education will know this, is the mass of administration going on. Uh, yeah. You have an entire... Um, section devoted to you know the governance, the president, yeah. the board, yeah. and so on. Um, I wonder what role they might be playing in the unwillingness to change. And if I think of uh, just just maybe to give an example, but go any direction you'd like with this. If I think, for instance, of writing instruction, it seems to be one of those things that it doesn't fit into a rubric. It doesn't quite match yeah. with any disciplinary knowledge. Yeah. So, right. well, that's a, that's a first cut. <laughs> yeah. No, I, you know, one of the interesting uh, examples, I think, and, and given the time frame you just laid out is, I think, and, and people don't talk about this, but oftentimes the board the administration and the faculty are in cahoots with one another in the sense that the, the marker is improve in the rankings, you know, and this, in the United States, we saw this, that, you know, a teacher's college would become a, uh, a university, a state university, and then it would try to move away from teaching and move towards research. And the board members could feel good about you know, boy, I came in and, and my institution was 250th and now it's 100. Isn't that, we're doing a great job, we the board. The administration, because of the United States, we have presidents that are, that are stepping stones. They move from one institution to the next. That what they will say is, I transformed the institution. We were 250 and now we're 100. 
And the faculty will say, yep, the students are better. And the problem with with writing centers, to, to narrow specifically on writing centers, is that writing centers often are seen as problems. You know, the kids go to the writing center because they have a problem. Well, wouldn't it be great if we don't have, you know, if we don't have writing centers, that means we don't have students who have problems, which of course is the exact wrong way to think about an essential skill that we need for the 21st century. I think the other other issue that we have to deal with um, is, and I've been thinking a lot about this over the pandemic, that if you look at the various crises that higher education has faced, there is probably no greater crisis for higher education since World War II than the pandemic. And the pandemic, um, you know, and I'm, I'm not by any means downplaying the, the crisis that we're in. My own university, a private university, lost $500 million this year. The University of California at Berkeley, a public institution, lost $1 billion. So I appreciate that everybody was internally focused and worried about, you know, how are we going to deal with this? But during World War II, universities were centrally involved in working towards defeating the Nazis. You know, that there were, there were research efforts undertaken. There's comments and quotations from university presidents all over the country that says, we're shortening the, the learn, the faculty have agreed to shorten the learning scheme for students so that they can graduate and go off to war, that we're going to work with, uh, you know, different places to train, train people to, to fight. The result of that after World War II was that the standing by the public of higher education was inordinately high. In the United States, what we saw was a boom in federal funding. The National Science Foundation was created. Um, the National Institutes of Health was created. And really, they looked on, on research universities as engines of cent- central engines for the country. I don't think that's the case today. And again, that's part of the reason I've written this book is that I think, you know, in the United States, uh, when when the sun set um, all over the country, you know, it was stirring. Everybody stuck in their houses. And when the workers came home from hospitals, be they nurses or doctors, there are people standing out on their on their front porches, you know, applauding them, saying, you know, bravo. I think if I said that about universities, do we have, you know, when you go home, are, you know, is your neighborhood applauding that Daniel's coming home from a hard day's work? I don't think so. And that, I think, is a real issue, is that the public perception of higher education has fallen. And the result is that um, universities are constantly looked on as just another entity that needs money. And we're competing against everybody. And that's a losing um, situation for us. And then we start to say, well, what areas are not essential? What can we cut? And what we do is we'll, we'll cut tenure track faculty in the United States. We'll cut writing programs because, well, you know, we don't have to have them. And that's, um, you know, 
Before we get an answer, you have to acknowledge the problem. And I'm trying to point out here, this is the problem so that we can develop an answer. And the knee-jerk response by administrators is to simply say, well, I I have to raise money. That's what I do. And I, I don't think that's necessarily the truth. Yeah, I mean, you make a wonderful point there with uh, the situation in World War II. And I think inside and outside the university, let's say the people who aren't directly connected, as you say, the wider public or the people who are, let's say, primarily teaching. I don't think any either of these groups would be typically all that impressed by, you know, the board who turns around and says, well, we were 250, now we're 175. You know, we've achieved something. What have you achieved? Uh, you know, we, it's almost like a parallel universe. And I think anyone uh, who sees, as as you make very clear in the book, what the R1 universities actually do, what the R1 universities typically do is they cost a lot of money. They create, uh, you know, research uh, environments which are entirely undiverse, which is not what we need. And as you also say, this is a one-size-fits-all uh, mentality. We need only... R1 universities. We don't. No. And, you know, um, a previous president of mine who was a good mentor to me said to me once um, that in the United States, we use the phrase board of trustees. And he said, it's hard for me to get across when when I ask a member to join the board. The trustee means that you are holding the trust you know, yeah, there's all this other stuff. There's fiduciary responsibility and all these different issues. But the reality is you're holding the trust of the university and you need to, that's what you need to guard. You know, and some years ago, uh, and I mentioned this in the book, I did a study of, of public boards of trustees, you know, and I had some governors, um, you know, who would speak off the record to me and say, it is, it's crazy. He said, trying to, to recruit a board member to a university that vitally needs, you know, an intelligent person on a board that can provide guidance is really difficult because what I get is the board member who wants to be at a university where there's a football team and they want tickets to the 50 yard line, the center, you know, the center of the, the stadium um, on Saturdays in the fall. And he said, that, you know, that's not what a board member should be thinking about, you know, that I've gotten elected to this board. And isn't that great? Because I can now go to six home football games. And by God, I hope our football team, you know, has a winning season. That, that, that is so, you know, uh, uh, not important in the grand scheme of things. But that's where we are today. And, and frankly, uh, you know, to add on today. The real problem we're seeing in the United States is the politicization of boards. We're seeing boards that are inserting themselves in the university in entirely inappropriate ways. Uh, you know, you may have heard just recently there's a, a public university, University of North Carolina, where the board, that through typical academic channels, there was a recommendation to give a, a person of color, an African-American woman, a tenured faculty position in journalism. And the board said, no, Um, she can be a a lecturer, but we will not give her tenure. That's entirely inappropriate. You know, I don't have any problems in an academic way that, that faculty in that individual's area of intellectual pursuit 
to say whatever, you know, the, the research is, is weak or the writing is weak or the publications are weak. So we reject that. But if it works all the way up to the board, for the board to insert itself and say, we don't like what she's writing, which is really what they're saying. That's an, that flies in the face of everything we know about good governance for boards of trustees. And I think that problem is only going to grow. Uh, one one of the more uh, terrible sides of uh, what an administration can do against a university it would seem to, definitely yeah, then absolutely yeah. you know. there there is one uh, note i made to myself and it would be i I, w- I would i would be aggravated with myself if i didn't return to it you make some really interesting comments again about writing and also about math so you you mentioned briefly the idea that you know writing center is seen as uh, remedial and without it then we would be you know free of certain problems in our in our yeah. education system and this is clearly not the most productive way of looking at it but you 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 say at one point about writing the evaluation of writing is one of the simplest and most confusing topics i have encountered and the statement intrigued me and i wonder if uh, maybe you could expand on that well, the easiest in the sense that when there's subject-verb disagreement, uh, you know, we've got a problem. So um, that that you know that's um, that's an issue. But um, I, this is foremost, not maybe not foremost, but it's central in my mind right now as I work my way through James Joyce's Ulysses. Um, I have said multiple times to my friends on Zoom, you know, if this guy were writing in my class, I, I would create a real problems with him because he's writing in a way that, that no one can understand. Um, but of course, Joyce is, is a master of the 20th century writing. And Leopold Bloom, one of the central characters of Ulysses, is probably one of the the key fictional characters in all of literature. Um, So that's the complex part of it, is trying to help an individual um, develop their own voice, not my voice, and be able to say something provocative in a way that draws the reader in, rather than you just throw the book across the room and say, I'm not going to read this. I'm going to go online and read the Monarch Notes version of it. You know, the, I, the podcast I listened to, and I, um, it's Frank Delaney, who has passed away tragically, but um, I was saying this to a friend yesterday, that there are times in the podcast where he's, he will read, you know, a page or two paragraphs that Joyce has written. And um, one of the components of any novel, there, there's a narrative sentence, and he will read that narrative sentence, and he'll say with great enthusiasm, isn't that a great sentence? Think about how to say that in a better way. You know, you just try right now. And part of it is infectious that the guy is trying to excite you about, you know, the, the wonders of language. But he's also pointing out that it could be a very confusing sentence, but it is a phenomenal sentence. And, you know, that's what I think what you want in a writer and a reader is to be able to think that not simply that the subject verb agreement is correct, but that this is exactly what I want to say. And I'm conveying it in a way that is not only clear to Bill, but is also clear to Daniel, the reader. 
And that's difficult. I mean, it's com- confusing and difficult. Um, and again, you're taking a risk with a student when you say that, when you're dealing with a diverse student body or you're dealing with diverse topics. Interesting as well in that area was what you have to say about math. And you, again, an anecdote from my side, my nephew, when he was in his senior year, took calculus and was having a bit of trouble. So a family friend who happens to be an engineer, we call him up and wonder, you know, could you perhaps provide some help? And his first comment was, sure, although I'm not sure how good I'm going to still be at calculus. I don't need it for my job. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and and this is one of those things that made me think, yeah, I mean, math, it, you know, being a formal science would be perfectly combined with logic, which is what a democratic public need to be able to work with on a daily basis. Right. You know, the, I, I read a, a funny uh, quote from a friend of mine. Uh, he put it on Facebook and, you know, taxes are due in the United States on April 15th every year. And in early April, he he put this statement on and said, I am so glad that I learned parallelograms for parallelogram season because it's really made my life easier. And who needs anything about taxation? And, and I thought, that's, that's so true. If, if you told me, you know, Bill, send me a parallelogram now and solve it, I would not have the slightest idea. But our financial literacy in the United States um, is so key right now that it's so low um, that, you know, the, and again, I, I also say in the book that, you know, part of what I have done is I've worked with low-income students in high schools to help them transition to uh, universities. Um, and it was a very different environment for me to, you know, all of a sudden I'm not in the classroom, I'm in a high school listening to students. And their financial literacy is abysmal. Um, you know, they will say if it's a grant or a loan, their phrase is, this is free money. You know, it's not money that I have to write for my bank account. Well, as we all know, a loan is not free money. And consequently, we've got students who are racking up loans of $100,000 while they're in university. And they have no idea, you know, how interest works. Well, that's a recipe for disaster. And it falls, as always, on the poor, that the poor are the ones who get screwed over when, when we're just teaching basic calculus, you know, to jump through the hoops. Well, Bill, uh, thank you. And you've been very generous with your time. I'd, I'd like to give you one last question uh, leading us out. Um, what is it that you see as the much of your book points to let's talk, let's think about what we need to change. And I was wondering what would you see as one of the most immediate or biggest or most important obstacles to that change? Or to quote from your book, who or what is it that prevents us from envisioning and enacting a dramatically different post-secondary experience? Uh, you know, if you'd asked me before the pandemic, <clears throat> I would say that it's uh, the thought that we're going to stay the course, that um, the, way we, the way we develop tomorrow is, is based on yesterday. And I think that's different right now. My biggest fear is that that's where a lot of um, thinking and energy is going right now, that 
And again, the board, the faculty, and the, the administration, what do they want for tomorrow? What do they want for September when the fall begins? The, the board wants a balanced budget. They just don't want to face another horrible debt the way we faced it. The administration wants the same thing, and they want that because they want students to come back to dormitories, they want students eating on campus, and they want students paying tuition. And the faculty want to get out of the house and go back to the life that they had as, as faculty members. But that's not sustainable. It's not sustainable, not only because of the pandemic, but because of all these issues that I faced. So, you know, I don't want to be overly critical of, of groups that have worked extraordinarily hard over the, next, over the last year. But I think for the next year, we need to think about what kind of environment do we want to enable us to move forward in a very treacherous time um, in, in the United States and, and really throughout the world. And, you know, the important point is to, is to acknowledge that universities have been central organizations in the advancement of democracy. And right now, democracy is under attack in many countries India, certainly in the United States, if we look at what happened to Hong Kong. Um, and rather than universities go dark and try to avoid the challenges, we need to think about how do we move forward in a concerted effort. And I think that's, you know, the public needs to be there with us, not simply for us, but with us, understanding the challenges we face and, and providing us with the latitude and energy to move forward. Well, thank you very much. That is William Tierney and his book, Get Real, 49 Challenges Confronting Higher Education, is out since last year with SUNY Press. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Bill. Goodbye. Goodbye. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye. And until next time here on Scholarly Communication.